The Brief is supported by Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. Competition probe into the UK's biggest house builders. Heatherwick to turn BT Tower into a luxury hotel. Government redirects billions from HS2's scrapped northern leg. And architects report the longest period of pessimism since 2009. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's big stories in architecture, planning, and housing news. Welcome to The Brief from Open City. My guest this week is Tom Wilkinson. Tom is a writer and historian and author of the new book, Emergency Money. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Merlin. The competition's watchdog has launched an investigation over concerns eight house-building giants have been sharing commercially sensitive information. This was reported in the AJ. The Competition and Markets Authority, that's the CMA, announced earlier this week that it has found evidence indicating eight companies, quote, may be sharing commercially sensitive information with their competitors, end quote, and this could have influenced the slow build-out of sites and the high prices of new homes. It has since launched an investigation under the 1998 Competitions Act into Barrett, Bellway, Barclay, Bloor Homes, Persimmon, Red Row, Taylor Wimpy and Vistry. It stressed that it had not reached any conclusions as to whether the law had been broken, but said such practices, if proven, could weaken competition in the market. The report found the complex and unpredictable planning system, combined with limitations with the speculative private development model, as the main causes of Britain's persistent under-delivery of new homes. As we know, that's a key factor in the escalating housing crisis. Sarah Cardell, chief executive of the CMA, said, quote, House building in Great Britain needs significant intervention so that enough good quality homes are delivered in the places that people need them. Our report is recommending a streamlining of the planning system and increased consumer protections. If implemented, we would expect to see many more homes built each year, making more homes affordable. End quote. Meanwhile, research by England's National Housing Federation and the charity Shelter found that spending more on UK housing will save taxpayers money in the long term by slashing benefit payments and health costs. Uh, The study, which was reported in the Financial Times this week, found an investment of £11.8 billion from the government into building 90,000 new social homes would be paid back within 11 years through extra tax revenue and savings on public services. Uh, Kate Henderson, who's chief executive of the NHF, said, quote, building more social homes is a win-win solution. It will immediately boost the construction industry, supporting thousands of jobs, and it will save the government and taxpayer money over the longer term, end quote. Okay, so Tom, who are these house building giants? Um, Why is it such a big deal that the CMA has launched an investigation into them allegedly sharing commercially sensitive information with their competitors. So these are companies like Taylor Wimpy, Barrett, as you mentioned, and they've made huge profits by artificially restricting supply. This is a practice called land banking. And that means that they're sitting on huge swathes of land and not building on it. Last year, they owned 918,823 undeveloped plots in the UK, which is an increase of 50% since 2018. And they've also been allowed to push down costs to a bare minimum. And the consequences of this is, you know, you only have to think about how shit new build housing is in the UK. 
As a result, they've produced annual returns for their shareholders of 17 to 32 percent since 2014. Now compare that to the FTSE 100, which has averaged 5 percent over the same period. The investigation is a big deal because the implication is that they've been operating as a cartel. That wouldn't really come as a huge surprise to anyone if it turns out to be the case. Uh, but they've been left to get on with it because they're politically powerful. 10% of donations to the Tory party since 2010 have come from the construction industry. And also it suits the Conservatives to keep house prices high. So this investigation is a curious one. And we might, from a cynical perspective, see it as a little bit of electioneering because the Tories here are trying to demonstrate to a certain group of voters that they have their interests in mind. Yeah, I guess the CMA would probably say they're independent of the Conservative Party. Um, and I suppose if I was a house builder, I'd probably say, well, look at these amazing returns I'm generating uh, for my shareholders. And if you don't like it, you could buy shares in my company and also have some of these returns. Is it sort of fair to to zone in on just like this one this one part of the housing conundrum. You can't live in a share portfolio, so that's not really much use um, to, to people who can't find a home. Um, but I do think it is a fair point that there are other things that need to be done apart from just sorting out this highly uncompetitive market. What's really interesting about this CMA investigation, uh, when it all went live earlier this week, uh, you saw London's FTSE 100 and FTSE 250 uh, indexes dragged into the red. What is it about the faith in these house building giants You know, that's such an important part of our, our economy and also these, these financial instruments? And then also, what are the consequences of us living in a society where that's such a big part of those things for those people who, like you say, don't have a home, can't live in a share portfolio? The UK is a rentier economy, which means we don't really produce very much apart from bombs, maybe. And the housing market is central to this rent-seeking model, and anything that threatens to undermine it threatens the whole house of cards. The consequences for people trying to find a place to live are predictably awful. Owning a house is increasingly impossible, and for the people who are trapped in the rental market, as a result, the costs are excruciating. But we should also think about the consequences for the Tories, because only one in 10 under 40s say they'll choose Sunak's party at the next election. And a recent article in the FT lays this primarily at the door of plummeting rates of home ownership in the UK, which has fallen 22% since 1990. And in the US, it's only fallen 6% over the same period, to give a comparison. Um, Thatcher said... Economics are the method, the object is to change the soul. And while turning Brits into a nation of homeowners worked for her and her party in the short period, in the short term, the policies in the long term are starting to look like the work of subversive infiltrators. It's turning a whole generation away from that kind of politics. Is there a risk that when we analyse these sorts of things, we fall into like a very divisive reading of society? Like there are people who benefit from rising house prices. There are people who've got these share portfolios and benefiting from the, the booming house builders. Um, is it unfair to see this as like an inherent conflict between the haves and the have-nots? I mean, is there 
is there something a bit more reconcilable? Because everybody in our society knows a house owner or is a house owner or is not a house owner. Um, is there actually more that brings us together than we think? There are complexities here. You know, everyone that has a pension is invested in the housing market in the UK, whether they're a homeowner or not. And that includes poor pensioners with living on the state pension. But there are genuine conflicts here. We can't wallpaper over them. So really interesting, uh, the CMA, Sarah Cardell, Chief Executive, um, hints that um, as a possible like, outcome of their report, if it's implemented, we would expect to see more homes built each year, making homes more affordable. So that's what the CMA is saying as a result of this investigation. Do you think it could have a potential impact, a positive impact on the housing crisis, them launching this competitions probe? Or is it perhaps there are some other bigger, long-running causes which go beyond just these alleged business practices of some private house builders? I think sorting this out will make a difference. But really, the answer to the housing crisis is a simple one. We need to build a lot more social housing. And there's no way around that. Tinkering at the edges is not going to solve the problem. Um, you know, People often talk about streamlining the planning process uh, that's another one that's really uh, nonsense because, you know, wh when they say streamline, they usually mean cutting planning officers and making the process more simple. But the more they've cut planning officers, the more snarled up the planning process has become. Actually, we need far more planning officers in the UK. So on that point about building more social housing, last year ended with a net loss of nearly 12,000 social homes in England. Um, this is due to sales and demolitions based just outpacing the construction of new ones. Um, at the same time, investment in new social housing remains falling. Um, Tom, new data from NHF and Shelter shows that an upfront investment in building new social homes would be paid back within 11 years. Give this great example, £11.8 billion building 90,000 homes. Seems like a good use of cash. Um, why does the government appear to be doing the exact opposite of what NHF and Shelter are recommending? Um, and that, that's not just the government, it would appear to be the opposition and sort of across the political spectrum. Yes, um, it's a good question. I suppose now that the Tories are starting to shed or have shed the red wall voters that Boris Johnson attracted in 2019, their voter base is returning to its core constituency of elderly homeowners who've paid off their mortgages. And propping up house values is the only thing, the only material thing besides culture wars that the Tories have to offer these people. And there are some in the party who seem to understand the probable long-term consequences of this uh, for their electoral chances in the future. People like Michael Gove occasionally make noises to this effect. But they're trapped by electoral calculus, so they're not going to do anything about it. Heatherwick Studio has been chosen to convert the iconic Grade 2 listed BT Tower into a hotel. The move comes after the former state-owned telecoms giant sold the Fitzrovia landmark to an American hotelier. This was reported by the AJ last week. Thomas Heatherwick's Camden-based studio will oversee the task of turning the 177-metre-tall former telecommunications tower into a hotel run by the MCR hotel chain. Uh, that's the third largest hotel chain in the USA. Uh, MCR operates around 150 hotels worldwide, most notably the Aero Saarinen-designed TWA Terminal at New York's JFK Airport. A really cool 1960s kind of 
building, a bit like the Sydney Opera House or something, these big shells. And um, that has been restored and incorporated into a new build hotel since 2016. Uh, the proposal follows MCR's purchase of the building from BT Group for £270 million, a deal which the telecoms firm says will, quote, preserve this iconic building for decades to come, end quote. Um, completed in 1964, the BT Tower was the tallest structure in London, overtaking the 1963 Millbank Tower. It remained the tallest tower until the NatWest Tower, was completed in 1980. An early noughties renovation saw the 360-degree colour lighting display first introduced to the rotating top of the tower, and in 2003, the glass-clad concrete building was given its listed status. Um, the yet-to-be-finalised designs by Heatherwick Studio will reopen the tower to the public for the first time, other than during the Open House Festival, um, since its closure of the rotating restaurant in 1980. Heritage bodies, including the C20 Society, have welcomed the hotel conversion proposal, recognising the need for substantial investment for the building's survival in the 21st century. In an Observer piece, the architecture critic and previous guest of this show, Rowan Moore, also welcomed the secured future this sale represents, but expressed his concerns over Thomas Heatherwick's repurposing of the building. Rowan Moore said, quote, Heatherwick's past work shows that he's not one to leave well alone, but rather festoon structures with oversized flower pots and look-at-me swirling shapes. One can only hope that he discovers some restraint. The BT Tower is already an icon. It's perfect. Let it be. So, Tom, what do you make of the BT Tower as a piece of landmark architecture London? Are you a fan? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's in my top 10, but it's certainly an important part of the cityscape of central London. And just think about how bizarre and uncanny this kind of technological monster must have seemed looming over the Georgian Victorian streets of Fitzrovia in the mid-1960s. And it's important historically as well, you know, it's a representation of this white heat that Harold Wilson had promised just a couple of years before. I don't think it's quite as exciting as the one in Prague, though, to be honest. Yeah, I have to, I have to agree. It's um, it's got a real presence in uh, the the West End because there's not that many tall buildings around there, so it really stands out, and you can see it from a lot of places. And um, certainly, as like someone who grew up on the Science Museum, it really like stood on the horizon for me as like a moment of science and technology. Um, uh, particularly in that moment when the internet was still an emancipatory force in society <laughs> rather than what it's become. Um. So, Tom, this uh, iconic revolving restaurant um, at the top has been shut for more than 40 years. Um, you know, obviously, people have been, luckily been able to go in as part of the Open House Festival. Um, uh, but really, for most people, it's it's fairly inaccessible. So MCR's promise to reopen that part of the building to the public has been met with a fair amount of enthusiasm. Um, what is it about these public viewing platforms, especially like this one, that have such an enduring appeal? And uh, what public benefits do you think they, they could bring to a city like London, especially reopening this one full time to the public? Yeah, I've always been a bit snobbish about revolving restaurants. I have to admit, they're terribly naff, aren't they? And the food is always bad. But then a few years back, a couple of friends took me to brunch in the revolving restaurant at the top of the TV tower in Berlin, and it was actually great fun. Nothing to do with the food, maybe something to do with sangria. Um, but as for the public benefit that this will bring to London, I must say I think it's negligible. Obviously, it's going to appeal mostly to tourists. 
maybe they should install some public toilets in the base of the tower. Maybe that would be a genuine public benefit or some revolving public toilets at the top. Yeah, there's always big questions about the cost and like how do you book a table and so on and so forth. Um, uh, there was a lot of hype around the Shard and the Shard was described as a vertical city. But you, you have to pay a lot to go to the very top. And if you want to go to one of the bars in the middle, you still have to make a reservation, minimum drink order and so on. So um, I can imagine this hotel... Uh, holding a, a huge event space and there being various industry events uh dinners award ceremonies people going up for drinks receptions I, I can sort of see a business model there um thomas heatherwick now part of the reason why this story's gone so far is any anything that concerns this architecture design practice seems to get a lot of coverage now thomas heatherwick is is one of the most high profile london architectural designers but has been drawn into quite some controversy over recent years um things like the garden bridge also more recently uh, a book published which we covered on the show which is sort of some people say have been the book has been quite unsimplistic in its critique of modern architecture tom do you share rowan moore's concerns about heatherwick's involvement in this project what do you think we might expect to see from this studio when it comes to the BT Tower redevelopment? Nothing good. But it's a listed building. Surely all the good stuff stays. Yes. Um, you know, there is one thing that I think that he could do to it, which is missing from the tower. It used to have all of these satellite dishes around the midriff. Mm. And when they were taken off, it lost some of that strangeness that it brought to the centre of London. So if she could reinstate them or something like them... Mm then, you know, I would maybe I'd forgive him. Yes, uh, in fact, when you even describe those shapes, it reminds me of the Olympic cauldron and the petals that plugged in because yeah. they were sort of petal-like, really bizarre, and I think they had to remove them for safety reasons. They were, like, you know, decrepit and likely to fall off. <laughs> um, but then it has left the tower looking, yeah, rather without a purpose. Yeah. Is there some kind of almost like an infatuation with Heatherwick that people have? Um, they, they sort of jump to these conclusions before they've even seen the designs. I mean, is, is it fair? Yes. I mean, I think that there, there is an infatuation. You, you sort of mean an infatuation with hating Thomas Heatherwick, but I think that there is also an infatuation with Thomas Heatherwick, and there's something mysterious. So Heatherwick himself is not on the show. However, if we look at the book, the sort of points made in it, which is the public like this stuff. You know, the, the public, people love the BT Tower, and people love buildings which aren't boring. They love buildings which are humanised, uh, which have um, maybe it could be biomimicry in kind of references and design references. I, yes, I mean, I don't really know what to make of this claim. Should we do designs by by referendum? I mean, actually, in Switzerland, you know, they do hold referenda on massive construction projects that are going to affect the cityscape. And curiously, I don't know if you know Zurich, there's this huge concrete grain silo yeah. right in the centre of the city. It's a very dull, not exciting... Not it's a completely windowless concrete monolith, yeah. really tall, taller than anything else in central Zurich. And it was built within the last 10 years, I think. It sounds stunning. I love and that kind of thing. It is stunning. And it was the planning consent was given as a result of a referendum. So the public can have surprising views on this stuff. Maybe the Swiss public is different from the British public. Maybe they've been educated in different ways. I don't know. The government has announced a £4.7 billion local transport fund for the Midlands and Northern England after abandoning HS2's northern leg. 
This was reported by the BBC this week. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has outlined how transport funding, redirected from the government's scrapped HS2 plans, will be distributed across regional councils outside big cities in the Midlands and Northern England. Under these plans, the Midlands and the North of England will receive a total of £2.2 and £2.5 billion respectively, with local authorities left to decide how best to spend the money. Labour have criticised the government's plans, slamming the announcement as a, quote, back of a fag packet plan, end quote, going on to accuse ministers of having the, quote, brass neck, end quote, to encourage councils to transform their regional transport services after, quote, countless broken promises to do just that, end quote. The funds will not be made available until spring 2025, after the next general election, which is expected later this year. Meanwhile, in the capital, another major transport project has received heat this week. Uh, the Byline Times reported that clean air activists have accused London Mayor Sadiq Khan of burying his contentious Silvertown Tunnel project as he prepares to secure an unprecedented third term as London Mayor. I think that they mean burying in the news agenda rather than actually burying it. It is underground. <laughs> Activists have accused the mayor's office of, quote, repeatedly refusing to answer basic questions surrounding the environmental impacts of the new vehicle-only tunnel, which is set to connect Greenwich and Newham. Okay, so Tom, understandably, it was pretty controversial when the government announced it was scrapping the northern leg of HS2 in October. Um, what might this local transport fund be able to deliver to the north and midlands? Uh, could this deliver the kind of transport upgrades which are desperately needed? Uh, or are we likely to see some, some piecemeal smaller things? I must say I'm no transport expert, but my understanding is that the problem, the, the main problem here is congestion on the line between London and Birmingham. And obviously that's not going to be solved by tinkering around the edges by doing things like subsidising bus travel, which is one of the uh, alternative uses for this money that's been mooted. Now, clearly subsidised bus travel is a good thing and is really we're in dire need of it outside of London, where ticket prices are very high, services are very bad. But it does seem like the substitute for High Speed 2 is going to be piecemeal. And, and focusing in on London, uh, London Mayor Sadiq Khan has really pushed the idea of reducing air pollution as one of the kind of defining features of his mayor mayoralty. Um, we certainly know walking around London, the air can be absolutely appalling on some of the big streets. Um, however, as these clear air activists pointed out, um, there's a Silvertown Tunnel project. It's costing £1.2 billion and it seems to be one of the, the biggest infrastructure projects going on in the city right now. Um, is there a kind of disconnect there? What do you make of the Silvertown Tunnel as an East Londoner as well, somebody living within this territory? And do you think the mayor's critics are making a fair point when they, when they call it out? Yeah, there's a strange contradiction here in Khan's policy, and I must say I don't really know what to make of it. I don't drive, so I'm not really going to see any benefits from the tunnel, and I imagine that for people living near its entry and exit points, it's going to make an already bad situation with pollution even worse. Yeah, I live fairly near the North Circular, and I know how unpleasant that road is. Um, it's a long-established fact that building more roads doesn't solve traffic congestion, so this scheme doesn't really make any sense to me. And imagine what £1.2 billion would look like if it was spent on um, you know, making all the streets walkable and so on. I wish there was a way that you could help the people who have to drive into London for business reasons and other stuff. It, it looks like people are having a really terrible experience if that's their daily life. But like you say, a Silvertown tunnel is just going to slightly ameliorate that momentarily and then business as usual. It doesn't really seem like transformative for those people either. 
So whether it's HS2, ULES, LTNs or Silvertown, it does seem more and more that transport policy itself is being caught in the crosshairs of big political showdowns. I mean, is politics itself changing to become more like fiercely divided? Is that just, you know, consequence of the Internet and algorithms or something? Um, or is there something unique about transport right now uh, that makes it such a, a kind of um, chasmic issue that people love to row over yeah i wonder if this is a little bit tinfoil hat but i suspect we can detect the influence of the oil and car lobbies working against green policies here astroturfing that kind of thing and as a result green policies have become a battlefield in the culture wars and that's convenient for the government too because like all culture wars they're a way of riling up the base without having to make any difficult policy decisions so we end up with the current government pandering to lunatics who think that LTNs are precursors of concentration camps architects are reporting quote the longest period of pessimism since 2009 with the industry weighed down by a plethora of problems this was reported by the aj this week the riba's latest future trends survey which examines the health of the profession paints a bleak outlook for practices over the next three months as architects continue to expect workloads and staffing levels to fall a plight of planning delays is among the biggest challenges currently facing architects, according to the Institute's figures for January. The RIBA's Head of Economic Research and Analysis, Adrian Mallison, said analysis of the monthly bellwether of the profession marks, quote, the longest period of pessimism since the survey began in 2009, as architects expect workloads to fall for the seventh consecutive month. Uh, the organisation put the trend of misery down to ongoing challenges, including planning system delays, as well as raised interest rates and a weak UK economy. Uh, the forecast for the next three months indicates 26% of practices expect workloads to decrease, while just 18% expect them to increase and 52% expect them to stay roughly stable. Uh, so, Tom, this is a pretty damning report from the RIBA, which paints a bleak picture of the architecture industry at the moment. Um, what does this downturn in the architecture sector look like on the ground? Uh, and why is it such a big warning sign uh, when it comes to the state of the construction industry as a whole? People are losing jobs. People are struggling to find jobs. It's really not great. But it has to be said that Britain is not alone here. In Germany, things are even worse, if anything. New starts on construction projects there have fallen by two-thirds over the last year. And the commercial property market is up the spout. And this poses a problem for the wider economy, not just for architecture and the construction industry. Um, in the US, banks... Um, have bad property debts that now exceed their reserves. And that's very worrying, to say the least. Yeah, it's interesting to know that architecture, they're like a specialist subcontractor within the construction industry. Contracting is a very, very economically sensitive business. You can lose a lot of money very quickly if you make the wrong decisions. So when architects find that money isn't flowing, it's usually because higher up the chain, somebody's pulled a lever and said, Oh, crumb, stop spending money on architecture now. The economy is slowing down. But generally what that means, like they say, a bellwether, uh, quite bad things are happening or have happened or things are about to get worse. Now, it's interesting, uh, when we look at the data, um, we've recently been confirmed that the UK suffered a, a shallow recession in the second half of last year. Maybe this relates to that. Um, just like zooming in on this recession a bit, because like, we've worked through recessions in the past. You know, I started reporting on architecture in 2009, 2010, so I'm very familiar with this kind of reportage. How does this recession compare to others? And is this a recession that's being felt by everyone in society 
equally because I think um, there's probably some people who've barely noticed. Outside architecture, the job market has held up surprisingly well in the UK, which is obviously a good thing. Um, the question is whether we'll continue to make a soft landing as Biden has done in the US um, while we try and escape inflation by holding uh, interest rates up high. I must say it seems a little unlikely, uh, given that neither the Tories nor Labour are inclined to stimulate the economy in the same way that the Democrats have. Um, instead, they're promising the same old doctrine of sado-monetarism. And that's a really interesting point when we look at public sector spending, because the context that this recession's happening in is one of a real collapse, especially at the local authority level. So, for example, Birmingham City Council, uh, which effectively declared itself bankrupt last year because it was facing a £300 million budget cap, has now announced a 100% arts budget cut. Okay, Um, And that's drawing widespread criticism from performers, including actress Joe Lysette, Nick Rhodes and others. Um, So, Tom, why is it so often that the arts are the first to go in a scenario like this? And why is it this industry, uh, you know, which in 2021 contributed £109 billion to the UK economy, so often seen as lacking value when it comes to funding? We might say that it's because they're so dependent on government subsidy, but then other industries are too. Think about the tax breaks given to nuclear or to steel, or to bring us back to our earlier topic, the advantageous VAT rates on new builds versus renovations. But the arts do have less leverage, unlike tube drivers, nurses or teachers, if people working in the sector go on strike, it doesn't bring life to a standstill. Although the case of the screenwriters in Hollywood suggests that their actions can be effective, so there may be a lesson there. Uh, We're now on to the culture section, and we're going to discuss emergency money, note geld in the image economy of the German inflation, 1914 to 1923, written by our very guest, Tom Wilkinson. We know you best as a writer and historian specialising in modern and contemporary architecture, Tom. So what inspired you to write a book about a historic German currency? Yeah, so I am by training an art historian, and uh, I'm an art historian who ended up working on architecture. That's how I think of myself rather really than an architectural historian. These might be minute distinctions, but they're important within the profession. Um, and I've, I've always specialised in the Weimar period. So that was what my PhD was on. And when I've been doing research over the years, I kept coming across this stuff, this note girls, and it looks really weird. You know, it's money, but there are pictures of devils and witches on it, people starving, you know, some quite grim stuff, some representations of the economic crisis. And these even take the form of people shitting money, you know, making very clear the status of money in that period. And this is represented on on this money. So I kept coming across this stuff and I thought, you know, no one's done anything about this. Someone's got to do something about it. And it just happened to be very topical. So could you just tell us a little bit more about what Notegeld is? I mean, I think many people would be familiar with like, textbooks of interwar Germany, an image of um, a, a wheelbarrow full of banknotes. What was going on in Germany at the time that necessitated Notegeld? And you know, why is it so weird and wonderful? So, yeah, the, the, the wheelbarrows full of banknotes is a classic image. Those were would have been Reichsbank notes. They would have been issued by the central government for the most part. But at the same time, there was also a problem with a lack of coinage, a lack of change. Um, and the inflation and this problem with small change began at the beginning of the First World War. 
Um, hyperinflation. It was, um, you know, loaf of bread cost how much? So hyperinflation. So the inflationary period actually is a lot longer than people generally remember. It began in 1914 because the imperial government took the mark off the gold standard to pay for the war by printing loads of money, yeah. and it only turned into hyperinflation in the last year or so, 1922 to 23. Shaping economic doctrine for years to come. Yeah. Worried well, about still this. today, you know, the Germans and hence the uh, EU is really still shaped by this traumatic experience. But Notgeld was something else. It was businesses and also local governments started printing very low denomination tokens mm. to make up for the lack of short, uh, small change to keep their local economies going. Mm. Um, and at first it looked very plain because it was just meant to be used uh, to give change. And then people started paying their employees with it, which obviously mm. had material benefits to municipalities and to uh, businesses, but long-term negative consequences, which you might think they would have predicted. And then people start collecting this stuff. So a big collector's market develops, and that's when people start printing the weird, wacky stuff after the First World War trying to compete to attract the attention of buyers. So when you say collectors, you mean what, around the world art collectors were buying this? That's an interesting comparison, and I think there is some crossover, but for the most part, it was a bit like collecting stamps. So there were clubs around Germany, people had Notgeld albums, people would go to fairs, there were quite a few Notgeld journals, so a big sort of collector's market grew up around it but this stuff was generally quite low value like stamps obviously there were rarer ones and they would go for higher prices and some people yes did see it as a store of value because during the hyperinflation or just in the inflation in general the art market went through the roof because people were rushing to the galleries to buy anything they could buy because it was a much safer store of value than cash and perhaps for less well-off people, collectibles like Notgeld might have seemed like they also offered a haven for money. It's interesting because what you're describing is creativity in the age of crisis, right? But we live in an age of crisis now, <laughs> you know? Um, so what kind of parallels are there with Notgeld in NFTs? Yeah, I think that there probably are parallels to be drawn there. They're both sort of highly dubious monetary instruments that have fused with the artwork but i think also there's a wider point about the relationship between art and economics or the visual and the economic because if we think about the way art is used today as a sort of blue chip investment that often is not seen or shown at all you know oligarchs keep their art collections in secured units in free ports they never look at them they never hang them you know, it saves on insurance apart from anything else, and you can keep it in a perfectly climate-controlled bank vault. So art has become money. So we're an architecture show, a built environment show. Are there overlaps in the examination of this unique, fascinating currency and the world of architecture today? I mean, at the time, there were certainly overlaps. So a, a lot of, perhaps the majority of this money represented place, and often in the form of architecture, townscapes or famous local buildings, usually medieval and we could see this as an attempt to shore up belief in this quite dubious money by representing something solid that represented German culture on it. 
And we might say that, you know, as the money devalued, faith in German culture was also at risk of being devalued. So that was a bit of a double-edged sword. But there was also a more material connection between Notgeld and architecture because sometimes some people issued notes to raise money to fund building projects. There was um, a trades union facility in Leipzig that had been bombed by the army during the Cap Putsch in 1920. The army claimed to believe that radical left-wing activists were hiding out inside this folks house. And so they bombed it and it was reduced to smoldering rubble. And the trades unions in Leipzig issued a special set of Notgeld to pay for the reconstruction of this facility and it was rebuilt within the year. So Notgeld could also be used to produce oppositional spaces. And I don't know if that would work in the same way today. I don't know if we could fund interesting building projects by issuing dubious fake money. It seems a little incredible, but, you know, people do, you know, print sales and things. So there are parallels today, I guess. Tom, it's clearly a very thoughtful, valuable book that a lot of people would be interested in reading. Um, Perhaps you could... um... Tell us a bit about where people can find more information about this book and also about um, your own work as an art historian and writer. Thanks, Merlin. If you check out tmowilkinson.com or my Instagram or my Twitter, it's all the same handle, tmowilkinson. You can find a link to a site that's selling discounted copies. Fantastic. Tom, thank you so much for being on the show. I really hope we can welcome you onto the brief again in the future soon. Thank you, Merlin. You've been listening to The Brief from Open City, made in association with the London Society and the 20th Century Society. This show is made possible in part thanks to Bloomberg Connects, a free digital guide to art and cultural organisations around the world. A link to download Bloomberg Connects is in the show notes. If you've enjoyed The Brief and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Brief and support Open City's wider work empowering young people from underrepresented communities, please become an Open City friend today. The link is in the show notes. The Brief is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Phineas Harper, Merlin Fulcher, Cyberchadder and Fran Williams. The series editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable. Thank you.